Let us uh, go in our Bibles this morning back to the Old Testament, and we are continuing in our series through the book of Isaiah during this Christmas season. Uh, We're going to flip to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning as we continue to experience what began last week in Isaiah chapter 7, this promise of Emmanuel that means God with us, that 700 years before the event took place that God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke His promises of a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, and we'll see this morning with even more specifics who it was that was to come. I'm going to read chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7 this morning to prepare our hearts. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading the English Standard Version this morning. Hear the Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with it when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot... Of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Bible says here, for so long we have been in gloom, but there is one who has come who is bringing to us glory. For so long we have been in darkness, but there is one who now has brought with him the light. How will this happen? How will God solve the problems of the world? The Bible says that the zeal of the Lord, the the passion, the holy and righteous passion, the jealousy, that loving jealousy of God the Father, it is He and His heart that will accomplish the promises here in the book of Isaiah. Let's take a minute and let's pray again and ask for God's blessing over His Word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. We thank You that You have come. Lord, open our hearts to receive it, we pray this morning. Lord, may Your Word land on fertile soil, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Two ways from this passage this morning, two ways that we need the birth of this promised Son that we must have the birth of this promised son. The first that we see, particularly in the first five verses, is this. We need the triumph of His glory over our gloom. We are told here we need the triumph of His glory to cancel out, to destroy, to end our gloom. 
This is not just Israel and Judah, although that is certainly immediately who Isaiah is speaking to. This is for the whole world because we know and we experience afresh every day. This week, we have been reminded again in our country that there is gloom and that there is anguish and that we as people cannot seem to solve it ourselves. If we go back to the original moment, the the political landscape of the day here when Isaiah is writing and giving us God's prophetic word, the political landscape at that time was crazy. Uh, It was confusing. It was alarming, as we saw last week in particular. Not at all like today, when everything is so calm and put together and, and rational and just feels good, right? We can identify a little bit with the panic and the fear and the struggles that Isaiah and the people of his day were experiencing. For them, Assyria, this new nation, was rising as a very threatening world power, superpower, not because of their own abilities, but because God had ordained that he would raise up this nation to bring judgment uh, on his own people and to call them into repentance because at that point they were living in a position of unrepentance toward the Lord. But in the middle of all of their chaos, God's faithfulness as always and God's love as always to His chosen people did not and never will change. So here God brought judgment to Israel. We saw this again last week being prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. This is the same scene now in Isaiah 9, but it tells us specifically Zebulun and Naphtali, which are two of the ten tribes in that northern kingdom of Israel, that God would bring judgment to them. In the Scripture, in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 29, we are told that that invasion of Israel was accomplished by the Assyrian king named Tiglath-Pileser. Again, if you're looking for a name for your child, let me suggest to you that one. What a beautiful name, Tiglath-Pileser. This happened historically, we know, in 733 B.C., and so God's promises were fulfilled. But the Bible is saying here that those were former times... And he is already pointing us to a new and glorious way. The divine promise was to King Ahaz, we saw last week, and his people, the nation of Judah, God's people. But as we witnessed firsthand last week, Ahaz, on behalf of his entire nation, said no to God. In their moment of desperate need and distress, God said, I will give you whatever you need, and he said, no, I've got it myself. I don't want you. I don't want your help. I wonder for how many of us, how many of us have made decisions where we have said similar, that we make decisions apart from Christ. We know his promises. We know his word. We know that he is faithful, and we go, I don't want you or your way. I want to do it my way, myself, and I'm going to put myself back on the throne of my life, and inevitably... Though it may be fun for a season, sin is fun for a while, you find yourself in gloom, and you find yourself in the same anguish that these people many years ago found themselves as well. Ahaz didn't believe that he needed God's grace. He did not believe that he needed God's glory. He did not believe that he needed God's illuminating light because he thought he could do it and handle it himself. Um, If you are a parent, you can tell the same story Uh, You've experienced these same dynamics, but for Alana and I this week, we got a fresh reminder of the beauty and the power of the gospel to stubborn people as we cared for my youngest, who is three years old, who was extremely sick this week. Um, 
She didn't understand, how could she as a three-year-old, how sick she was. She didn't understand the depth of the problem that she was facing. She needed our help. But as three-year-olds are wont to do, she did not want our help. Uh, She became incredibly dehydrated uh, as she continued to just be sick. I won't give you the details, but she was dehydrated. All she needed was water. She did not want water. All she needed was medicine that would make her cough go away, that would make her, her little tummy feel better. She did not want medicine. All she needed was water. All she needed was medicine. The, the solution was lovingly being handed to her, and in her stubbornness, she said, no. If you were there in a the moment, it was not a gentle no. We as sinners before a holy and loving God do very much the same thing when we say no to God. Isaiah here is telling us the good news of the gospel in 700 BC, and those people react the same way that all people react is, no, I can do life myself. I don't need your grace and your goodness. But what Isaiah is telling us this morning is God has come to us. He has come to love. He has come to save. He has come to heal stubborn hard-hearted people like me and like you. And He invites us to drink deeply of His healing grace, the medicine, the water of life that we so desperately need and must have. The Bible says in verse 2 that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Gloom to glory. Darkness to light. Oppression to liberation. Wickedness to holiness. Jesus has made a way. Matthew 4 tells us in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus is specifically the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. Listen to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he, that is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus chose in His love and complete knowledge to go there to Zebulun and Naphtali and be light and bring glory and to fulfill all of prophecy. He says, if you want to be a part of the light instead of a part of the darkness, then repent, meaning turn from your sin and turn to me. Receive me, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here because I am here. Now, Israel... Judah, if we go back to Isaiah's day, they would wait historically 700 more years before Jesus' arrival. But we are no longer in that day. Jesus is here. Jesus has come. Jesus has come to earth. He has manifested Himself in the flesh, and one day He will return to take us home so we don't have to wait We can come to Him right now. We can experience His grace and His mercy right now. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus speaking says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. See, Jesus, like he did then and does now and will continue to do tomorrow and forever until the day that he returns, Jesus brings dead people to life. From the prisons of our own failure and our struggles and our past and our hidden sins and our brokenness, he brings freedom. He brings new life. He brings the ability to obey and walk in his ways. He brings glory. Not temporarily, not the kind that he will take away when you're not looking, but eternally. And he tells us in verse 3 that anyone and everyone can come. It is available to all people. When he says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. And then he goes on to, to give us a little geography region. The very region that Jesus is in that was prophesied by Isaiah is called Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. God's grace is available to all. And Jesus will continue to speak those realities in every word that he speaks and every action that he takes. If we go to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, we get this beautiful picture of what Jesus' mission is here on earth to us that we are called to join him in. John, giving another prophetic word, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, standing before Jesus in heaven, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That is a picture of heaven and all nations rejoicing over the grace and the goodness that Jesus has come and that Jesus has saved us. But there's rejoicing that happens now here on earth. The Bible says like when a great harvest comes in, or to use a modern analogy, when a huge bonus comes in on payday, there's rejoicing like dividing the, dividing the spoils after a victory, which I can imagine would be a whole lot like the atmosphere in the locker room after the team wins the Super Bowl. There is rejoicing over what we have won. Joy to the world, we sing. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And most importantly, let every heart prepare him room. Will you let he who has come come into your life and your world? He says in verse 4, the yoke of our burden has been lifted. How many of us today find ourselves living under a yoke, the weight, and the weight that we have created and made worse by our decisions and our mistakes? It says the rod of his oppressor has been broken as it was on the day of Midian day of Midian. Maybe you have heard of the Jewish hero in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, a man named Gideon. He was a freedom fighter of sorts for the Jewish people, and he defeated the armies of Midian, and that is what Isaiah is referencing here. If you remember the story at all, Gideon had a ragtag bunch of soldiers that couldn't even point their spears in the same direction, but he had 32,000 soldiers, and God comes to Gideon and says, you've got way too many people. The army that he would face was 135,000 Midianites. And God says, you've got way too many. And as you recall the story, God whittled that 32,000 soldiers all the way down to a faithful 300 soldiers. 300 against 135,000. What are the odds? Why would God do that? Why would God put uh, Gideon and his people in that sort of a situation? 1 Corinthians that we shared at the end of last week's service gives us a snapshot of what's going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God gave the victory to Gideon. Gideon didn't win anything, and God made that incredibly crystal clear. God gave the victory, and now He has sent a greater Gideon, who by the world's standards, Jesus, the one who had come, a baby who had come, was, had incredibly even greater odds of not succeeding. How unlikely a hero would Jesus seem to appear by the worldly standards, but through God's miraculous intervention into history, sending Himself, sending His only Son to save the world, not through a conquering army, how would Jesus win? By dying, by giving Himself. God sends a baby to conquer the sin and the injustice and the brokenness of our whole world. As in the days of Midian, Isaiah says to us. And then he says in verse 5, every boot and garments of the warrior will be burned. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary puts it this way, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. It's not just winning a battle that Isaiah is painting a picture for us. It's not even winning the war. It is that God will end war, that strife, that death, that hurt, that pain, that suffering, and all the awful things that go with a real war. God is saying that through Jesus, He will end all of that, that He will bring victory and an end to fighting. And notice that it says, will be burned. It is in the passive voice, meaning we are not doing this. We are not accomplishing it. God is accomplishing it on our behalf. Every boot, every uniform for war will be burned. That day will come to an end. One of my favorite movies of all time, although I understand that it is actually a 10-part miniseries, uh, is Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is an incredible series that walks you through the story of World War II through the eyes of the 101st Airborne Division, the 506th and Easy Company, and this small group of soldiers, and it follows them through an incredible season of the war. If you have seen the movie or you know anything of history, uh, this group from the 101st uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. They refused to retreat during the Battle of the Bulge. And then they ultimately got to march into what was called Hitler's eagle, eagle's nest at the end of the war. The last remaining member of 506 Easy, Easy Company, his name is Edward Seamus, died this week at the age of 99 years old. The last member of Easy Company. This is one of the men who was featured in the, in the movie somewhat prominently. Um, this particular soldier, interestingly enough, he was Jewish. So of all the reasons that he had to fight, he had one more. He actually toasted his son's bar mitzvah with wine that he stole from Hitler's eagle's nest. Incredible poetic justice. Uh, Edward lived to be 99. He survived World War II, which if you recall the phrase, World War II was the war after the war to end all wars. He lived his entire life up till I'm sure the day that he took his dying breath this week, looking forward to a day when there would be no more war. But we know since his day, war continues because injustice continues, because brokenness and evil continue in this world. And what Jesus is promising is that there will be an end of war. It will be done. The conflict will be over. An end of strife, an end of 
death, an end of gloom, an end of darkness, and it will be replaced by the unending rule and reign of King Jesus in glory and in light to destroy the gloom for all those who will put their faith and trust in Him. We need Jesus to conquer our gloom with His glory, says Isaiah. But secondly, what do we need? We need the arrival of the newborn King. We need Him to come. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 tells us, to us a child is born. Flashback two chapters earlier to Isaiah chapter 7, he told us Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to us. Look at how the Gospels fulfill this promise made by Isaiah. Again, this is Luke chapter 1. The angel speaking, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He's speaking to Mary, obviously. And you shall call his name who? Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a birth announcement. Have you ever received a birth announcement? You get the postcard, you get the email, you get something in the mail, you get a picture. Uh, birth announcements, as I have experienced, all have one thing in common, right? They're all sent out after the baby is born. Here is a picture of our new baby boy, our new baby girl, but not here. This is a different kind of a birth announcement. The angel Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary before Jesus is even conceived. Isaiah goes back 700 years earlier to give us a birth announcement that a Savior is coming. Understand, guys, this is the meaning of Christmas. This is the purpose of Christmas. This is the message and the reality of Christmas. Santa is great. Presents are great. Polar Express, great. We watched Elf this week, extra great. Love it so much. Time with family, awesome, all the warm fuzzies. The message of Christmas is so much more. The message of Christmas is the birth of Jesus Christ, the arrival, the coming of the Savior who is King of the world. That's what Christmas is about. God became man, and God walked among us to save us The birth of Jesus was a miracle. We rejoice every day when when a new baby is born, and we in some sense call it a miracle, and rightfully so. It is an incredible gift from God, but only one baby has ever been born of a virgin, born fully God and fully man, and there will never be another. His birth was a revolution, right? Lots of babies have become king, but only once has a king become a baby, only once. His birth was a gift. It's normal to give gifts to new, to new babies, to new moms, to new parents, and, and rightfully so. Uh, when the wise men show up to toddler Jesus, they bring gifts with them. We ought to give the best gifts that we have to Jesus. He does not need them, nor does He require them. But the greatest gift of all time is that Jesus gave us Himself. He came for us. He died for us. 
Isaiah, some 700 years beforehand, Isaiah did not get to see Jesus' arrival, but he gives us four incredible names for Jesus. It's not a complete list of every name or descriptive category that we could think of for the Son of God. The point here is that it is completion. It signifies completion, that Jesus is sufficient, that He is everything that you and I need, that He is the perfect, wonderful counselor. He has the best and perfect plan for your life. He is sovereign over your days. You can trust His wisdom. You can trust His Word, His Holy Spirit's guidance. Two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11, again, telling us about the Savior who had come, it says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus fulfills this perfectly. His second name is Mighty God. That is, that Jesus defeats all our enemies easily. Take comfort and take cover under the shelter of His wing. He's called Everlasting Father. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is an amazing, amazing miracle that we cannot fully comprehend, but yet we have this picture that Jesus the Son is being referred to as Everlasting Father. Jesus was there at creation. He's always been there. Jesus made you. He cares for you. He knew you before you existed. He chose you. He called you. He adopted you. He loves you. He forgives you. He will never leave you, and He enjoys you. He is not disappointed to have you in His family. So enjoy Him. And the fourth and final name that He gives is the Prince of Peace. He's King. He's king now. He's king forever. But he's the prince of peace, particularly. What does that mean? He brought us peace, not just the stormy seas of life and peace, yes, but so much more. He brought us peace with God because the Bible tells us, Old Testament and New, that outside of Jesus, our position, our relation to God is not one of friends, but one of enemies. Romans 5.1 tells us that promise that Jesus came to make peace between us and God, not that God has done something wrong, but that we have. Our sins have put us in a position where we are now enemies of God. We reject and rebel against Him. We do what we ought not. We were the enemy of God. We were the issue. The sin problem is not just out there. We can't sort of just generally uh, blame it on society as a whole. It's in here. I have a sin problem, and only Jesus can bring peace with God, peace within my soul as a result. How does He do it? Isaiah, again, who never laid eyes on Jesus, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us more about how Jesus brings us peace. We know this chapter well. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. That's the stubbornness. And the Lord has laid on Him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Understand that Isaiah is giving us this incredible promise that the one who has always been king 
with his perfect righteous government on his shoulders, the one who is crowned king of the throne of David forever and ever, that king came down to us and lived the perfect life without any sin. Willingly, knowingly went to a cross to pay for sins that you and I committed. He did not deserve judgment. He deserved glory. He made the greatest trade of all time and has offered you all of the benefits of it. My death for your sin. And I will give you my life, my perfect righteousness, my glory. The punishment and the justice that we deserve, He took it on the cross. We sang, how many kings stepped down from their throne? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? Only one did that for me. We need a king who comes down to be with us, to save us. We need the newborn king. We need his arriving. He has changed gloom into glory, darkness into light. He has come as a king to rescue his people. He has come to you. Will you come to him? Let's pray together.